You know, over the last couple of weeks, I've been sharing a few things with you, and uh, they've not necessarily been all connected, but they are all connected as well. And, uh, you know, this year, uh, normally in the past, I've done a Vision Sunday where I kind of say, hey, here's, our, here's what we're believing God for this year, and here's what's gone on, and those types of things, and kind of, but I haven't, didn't really feel led to do that this year. And so, um, but one of the things that, and I'm going to share this again this morning, I shared this two weeks ago, uh, and if you happen to not be able to be at service that day, I would encourage you to jump online and go listen to the, the full message um, but it was entitled, The Church I See. And it's really what church I see in my heart. Uh, kind of, you know, if you want to say it this way, it's who I believe God is calling us to be as a church. And so, um, and then last week I talked about, are we, you know, are we ready? Are we ready to receive people that God would send to us? And this morning, uh, we're going to kind of touch on both of those, but in another aspect. But before I get into all that, I want to read this again uh, that I shared with you two weeks ago, just so that everybody, because I'm going to take one part of this this morning and uh, really share on it. But um, so as I was praying here a few weeks ago, the Lord began to, he actually stirred up the phrase, the church I see in my heart. And so I started praying about, well, what, what is the church I see in my heart? And I just started praying about it. And then I sat down, I started writing some things out and kind of reading over them and editing them and redoing them and taking things out and bringing things, you know. And so, but, uh, but this is what I came to. Uh, so if you are kind of curious, like, you know, what's in, you know, pastor's heart and where are we going as a church? I believe this is part of it. And uh, so I'll read this and then I'll uh, elaborate on one of them. But the church I see is full of people from all walks of life multicultural and multi-generational from different social and economic backgrounds but unified by Christ where all are welcomed and accepted the church I see is full of hope because of God's incredible love for each of us a place where the sick are healed the hopeless find hope where the broken are restored and where the lost find salvation and purpose where people can find and flourish in their gifts the church I see never stops searching for lost people because God never stops searching for us The church I see is where people find a relationship with God instead of religion, where living for God is no longer obligation, but it's heartfelt desire. The church I see is full of passionate worshipers lifting their voices to God in unison, setting the atmosphere with the presence of God for the preaching of his word to minister in a very practical and powerful way in the hearts of all who would hear. The church I see has influence and such impact in our city that it helps shape the culture of our region and is a force for the gospel to be heard like never before to be an agent for good and change in our community, ministering to practical needs without compromising who we are. I see a church that realizes that none of this can happen in their own ability. Instead, they are a church committed to prayer and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I see a church where Jesus is made famous and all glory goes to God. You know, and this really is, I mean, epitomizes what I see in my heart for us as a church. Uh, you know, we have a vision, you know, I mean, and I've shared it many times. We're a Luke four eighteen and 19 church. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me because he's anointed me to, to heal, to restore, to, to deliver. And, all, you know, and you can go read it. Well, if that's who Jesus was and if we're Jesus' church, we should probably be about that. And uh, that same thing. And so, you know, and, and, we, and so we have a, you know, a vision, if you will. We have a mission. We want you to what? We want you to get connected with other believers, We want to help you and to see you grow into what God has for you, not just from a mental standpoint, but I mean to grow into everything that God has given you and deposited in you and for you to flourish and grow into what God has for you so that you can ultimately help us build the kingdom of God. You're not building the kingdom of David. I'm not building the kingdom of David. I could care less about that. I want to build the kingdom of God. 
And, uh, and, and I realize is that God has implemented the church, the local church, really is God's plan. Uh, you know, I mean, it really is. God believes in the church so much that he died to establish it. And, uh, you know, and so much that he says, hey, when you come together in, in, in unison, that doesn't mean just this physical building. The church isn't this building. The church is us. The Bible says is that the, 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 um, the temple of God is now us. It's our, our individuals. But yet when we come together, God's presence will show up in, in a multiplied manner uh, that's stronger than what it will when we're just by ourselves. And so, you know, um, you know and I realize that those are some big statements there. Because you're like, you mean you want to change the culture of our area? Yeah, why are we here? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, if I'm just like being raw and just truly... Yeah, why, is this a social club that we come together and just, yeah, that's where I go to church? Or are we here to actually change something? Because Jesus came to change stuff, and he did. So why wouldn't we as the church say that we ought to, I mean, if we're going to believe God, let's just believe God. I mean, I love the reputation of the guy in the book of Acts where it says, are these those who have turned the world upside down? Uh, you know, you're like, well, how's that going to happen? Through the power of God, I don't have a clue. That's not for me to figure it all out. Our responsibility is to say, okay, God, what's our next step? What's the next step? And we're going to take it one step at a time. But I believe God will give us, which includes you, opportunities to affect the culture. True. You go and look throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, all business, commerce, and entertainment all was shaped and fashioned at the gates of the city. I mean, you go and look at it. The church was right there in the gates. They weren't elsewhere. They were shaping the culture as it was being made. Now, how in the world are we going to do that? I don't know. We're going to find out. Because I believe that is who we're called to be. I believe that our church is also called to break uh, a divide in our community. I mean, I've lived multiple places and everywhere. It's always, maybe it's a little different. But I believe that we can actually be a force to break the bondage of racism. I actually believe that. Why? Because it is a bondage. Now look, I lived in Kansas. I saw some black people at Taco Bell one time and I caught myself staring at them because I hadn't seen some black folks in a little while. That's not a joke. I was like, I need to stop looking at them. But you know what? There was racism that was alive and well between whites and Hispanics. And I said it and everybody looked at me cross-eyed like, what? And I was like, oh, y'all don't even see it, do you? Because no one had ever actually said that's what it was. Well, I mean, the blood of Christ is the ultimate leveling field. It brings everybody on the same plane. And so, you know, and for years we've prayed for probably, I don't know, maybe two years now. Is that one of the things that we've prayed corporately at prayer and even in my own personal times of prayer is that what? Is that we would be a church that would reflect the community in which we're called to. In other words, if we got black people in our community, we're going to have black people in our church. If we got Hispanic people in our community, we're going to have Hispanic people in our church. If we got white people in our community, we're going to have white people in our church. If we got locals born and bred here, we're going to have locals in our church. If we got people who move in, transplants, we're going to have them in our church too. Why? Because I believe that reflects health in a church. I really believe that. 
And, and so this is, you know, and so some of these things, you're like, well, I don't know how this is going to happen. That seems like some pretty lofty goals there. I'm not going to believe God's small. Let me say it in other words. I refuse to insult God with the puniness of my prayer. And I would encourage you to not insult God with the smallness of your faith. And I don't mean that to be offensive to you. I mean that to stir up in you faith. If you're going to put the effort into believing God, believe God. Make it worth it. Right? I mean, I believe that honors God. And so, you know, this morning, I don't know why I went off on all that, but I could preach all that again, by the way, because... It's just in me. But uh, this morning I want to share uh, for a few moments and really elaborate upon one of these. And uh, this week, uh, even as I was praying about uh, just kind of what the Lord would have me to share, there was a particular phrase that we'll get to towards the end that just kept rolling around in my heart. And so as I began to just pray some things out, uh, I really came back to this because I didn't intend on preaching this this week. But um, this is what I felt led in my heart to do. And so one of the things that I had mentioned there um, with the church I see is this one. I see a church that is full of passionate worshipers lifting their voices to God in unison, setting the atmosphere with the presence of God for the preaching of his word to minister in a very practical and powerful way in the hearts of those who would hear. You know, I believe that there is an undeniable tie between the move of God's spirit and the worship in the house. I'll say it this way. I've never been anywhere that God's spirit moved that the worship was non-existent. I mean, you go and look in the Old Testament, they dedicated the temple. What happens? No one ever preached. Why? Because the glory of God fell during worship. And it says it was so strong that people couldn't even stand up. Couldn't even talk. No one read a scroll. Now you're like, is that going to happen? That's weird. Let me say this. If it did, you would be more than okay with it. (laughs) Trust me. You would be more than okay with it. Why? Because it wouldn't be weird. It would be the presence of God. You know, but one of the things, and look, and we have a worshiping church. But I want to challenge even your thought of worship this morning a little bit. Because ultimately, worship is not about me and worship's not about you. If it's about us, it's not worship. It's really not. Worship is, is what? It, it's giving glory and honor I mean, you can say, well, you know, I'm not a singer. I'm not a worshiper. You know, we all are worshipers. The question is not, are we a worshiper? The question is, is what do you worship? Because we all worship something. Someone, something. It might be your bass boat. It might be your house. It might be your car. It might be your kids. You can worship a lot of things. It could be money. It can be your job. It can be success. You, let me say it this way. You worship what you pursue. That's what you worship. And so what you worship determines what's of value to you. What's of significance to you. What's of true worth a, a time of investment to you. Worship matters. And again, it's not a question of if you worship. You need to be asking yourself, what I worship? Who do I worship? Is my worship in a wrong place? In the Old Testament, we see it time after time after time again, which we don't use this word other than on a TV show, 
They called them idols. Things that they had propped up to say, oh, well, this is God. And they would worship a statue. Paul actually dealt with this in the book of Acts. He says, you know, there was actually an idol that said, to the unknown God. And he's like, you're worshiping something that you don't know that doesn't have a name. You know nothing about it. And yet they're worshiping this. And so many times, if we're not careful, we can go and worship at altars that give us nothing in return. They're empty. They're lifeless. And yet, we do have an altar to go to. That you're actually called to go to. That I'm actually called and invited to go into. Which is to come and to worship the Lord. Why? Because he's the only one rightful and deserving of true worship. Of true praise. It's not a song. It's not music. Those are forms. But that's not what worship is. Not solely. I mean, it would be the equivalent of me saying that I'm married, therefore I have a roommate. There's a lot, I mean, hopefully, there's a lot more involved in my relationship with my, I hope we have conversation I hope we're not just managing life together like, okay, well, here's our bills. Here's this. Okay, you go to your side of the house. I'm going to go to my side of the house and we're never going to talk and things are... I mean, that's an aspect of being married. Yes, we live in the same house. But there's a lot more relationship to be had besides just existing together. Well, the same is true with our worship. Worship is really the sum of our life. It's taking all that we are and all that we do And keeping it in proper perspective and in proper place. And so I want to give you two examples this morning of two ladies specifically. They're two separate acts. um, But they're very, very similar. uh, That were acts of worship. And you're like, well, you know, Pastor, this is is, uh, Palm Sunday. Why don't you go read about Palm Sunday? It was a lot about worship. Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest as Jesus is riding in on the cult. They're singing worship. Now... In all context, the next week, they're also the same ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. So. <laughs> but when Jesus came in, it was a parade. I mean, people were worshiping. Why? Because people had came, or at least in a moment, were recognizing him as being the Messiah. And so I want to show you two accounts this morning. That, and I'll, you'll understand why I'm tying all this in. Because... Uh, you know, as we're talking about worship, and, and even as I said a moment ago, is that worship is much more than about me or about you. Worship can greatly affect us. I believe that, that uh, our worship aligns us with what God is wanting to do in a moment. Yes, absolutely. But I believe that if we will keep our focus in the right place, which is ultimately bringing glory to God, another side effect of that is that my worship can actually affect my neighbor. I mean, if we really understand how worship works and the power that God has placed upon it, we can actually understand that when I begin to lift up my voice and I begin to to express my gratitude and my thankfulness to my Father who has saved me, who has healed me, who has delivered me, who has ransomed me and saved me from hell, and I can respond to Him in worship, guess what? All of those things can now start to happen in people around me as well. 
Let me say it another word. I'm not the only one who gets the, the experience of my worship. Other people can actually experience the weight of worship. And when we collectively will do this together, that's why, I mean, you go and look. Throughout the Bible, unity matters greatly. Go look at the Tower of Babel. They're building this thing, and even God himself comes down and says, I got to do something, because if I don't, there's nothing that they cannot do. Now, think about that statement. This is God. Almighty, all-powerful, I mean, just no limits, And he says, man, because they're all of one mind and one heart, there's nothing they can't accomplish. If we will enter this place with a heart of true worship, I'll show you what what I believe this is scripturally here in a few moments. I believe not only will we leave changed, but I believe people who don't have the first clue how to really experience the presence of God will just get to come and to join in, and they're going to be not just blessed, But I mean transformed in a moment. Where things that they've been dealing with and the things that the enemy has just had control in their life. That that those things could be broken off of their life in a moment. Well it's not just me preaching a good word. I mean what if we didn't preach the word of God one Sunday? What if all we did was praise and worship? Would you still leave blessed? Blessed? Would you still leave? I got something this morning. Or would it just be, well, you know, that was different. I guess pastor didn't have a message this week to preach. I don't know. I'm not telling you that that will happen. It may. I'm not opposed to it. But I, and really the way that I wrote it, it, it I, mean, I rewrote this multiple times. Changing words, this or that. But part of what I wrote was that, it would, that our worship would set the atmosphere for the presence of God. Or with the presence of God. I wrote it originally for the presence of God. I don't believe that's accurate. I believe our worship sets the atmosphere with the presence of God. The Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. So when we worship, God will show up. But it sets the stage for the preaching of God's word. To minister to people's hearts. Our worship helped get people's hearts ready to receive what God would want to say to them through his word. We have a part to play. And so let me show you some examples of this before I run out of time. The first one comes out of Luke chapter 7. Now this particular account, uh, we don't know who this lady is. It doesn't say, it just says a certain woman. Um, But... This, actually, this particular passage actually will tie in with what I shared with you last week about are we ready to receive um, those that God would send to us. And so here in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7, it says, One day the Pharisees asked Jesus to have, or one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to, the, to his house and sat down to eat. It says in verse 37, When a certain immoral woman from the city heard, heard that he was eating there, She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Says she knelt down behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell to her to on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Says when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, 
he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Because she's a sinner. If Jesus was really who he said he was, he would recognize that this lady... Because by the way, in this culture, women were never supposed to touch men. Like it's just, I mean, like a husband and wife, like, you know, keep in the bedroom. Y'all don't touch, you're not, you just didn't, nothing. There was no PDA happening. But it was unlawful for a woman to touch a man. And yet this woman comes in and she just, now let me give you the actual situation. This lady barges into a religious leader's house, a Pharisee. She just walks right in. She's an uninvited guest. She's crashing the party. Here he is thinking, man, I've got Jesus in my house. Now, we don't really know the context of of this Pharisee. I don't know if he was someone who was possibly um, interested in Christ, if he was somebody who was opposed to Christ. I don't know if this was a setup for him to try to get some way to try to manipulate things so he could get something against Jesus. I don't know the situation. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus got invited for dinner and a lady crashed the party. That's what we know. And it says that not only did she crash the party, but she's making a scene. Like it's one thing to show up to a party uninvited, right? It's another thing when you're the center of attention. Now this lady wasn't the center of attention, but I can tell you, everybody in the room's watching her. Going, what in the world? Because I can tell you, everybody knew this lady. When it says a certain woman, it's not in a good way. Everybody knew who this lady was. To the point that the Pharisee even says, if Jesus had, was, if he had an ounce of God in him, he would know this lady is dirty. That would be my modern translation. He would not be letting her touch him. I love verse 40. Gotta love Jesus. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. The man didn't even say it. Simon, don't even open your mouth. Let me just answer the question that you just posed in your mind. Aren't you glad that I'm not Jesus? (laughs) Praise the Lord. So Jesus answers his thoughts. And Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Sure thing. Because why? He doesn't realize that Jesus knows what his thought was. He's thinking, you're about to give me a compliment, this beautiful dinner. I've made all this preparation for you. Hey, speak on. <clears throat> then Jesus told him a story. It says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. It says, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answers and says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So, kind of in context. He's looking at the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. He says, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off my feet, which was customary. That's just like, that's what you did for people you didn't even like. Because you want to keep your house clean, so you let them wash their feet off. Why? Because they wore sandals and walked on dirt roads all the time. That was just standard procedure. If somebody came in your house, it'd be like in the north where they say, take your shoes off. I remember the first time I went to like Michigan, everybody took their shoes off at the door and I thought it was the weirdest thing. I'm like, what? Why? 
Well, because they have snow and you track it all in people's houses and they don't want all that. Well, you can take your shoes off. It was just customary. He says, look at this woman kneeling here. When, you, when I entered your home, you didn't offer me uh, water to wash the dust off my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Says, you didn't greet me with a kiss, which again was customary, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Now, there are few places on the human body I would rather kiss than somebody's foot, and I'm going to be honest with you, but yet she is. Verse 46 says, you neglected the courtesy of the olive oil to anoint my head, which was normal. It wasn't unusual. This was normal for them. But she has anointed my feet with a rare perfume. In verse 47, he says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many. Here's one thing about Jesus. He doesn't sidestep sin. He just says what it is. He acknowledged who she was. Now remember the thought of Simon. Jesus, if you knew who this woman was, Jesus is answering that question. Simon, I know who she is. I know her reputation. I know her sins are plenty. He says, I tell you that her sins, even though they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus turned to the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now see, Jesus had been invited over for dinner. But a lady crashed the party in a moment of worship. that nobody else in the room was really prepared to give. Even though this woman was a sinner, which ought to tell us something about how the grace of God works. God's grace does not repel people who are in need of the grace. It's quite the opposite. God's grace draws people in who need the grace of God. Romans says it this way. It's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. Not the judgment. It's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. And so I believe that even for us, and look, and I, I'm not saying that we by any means don't call things what they are. But at the same token, we ought to take a note from Jesus here and realize that everybody is just one moment away from redemption. It's, just, it, it's a decision that can be made in a split second. But yet this woman, even as a sinner has the ability to recognize who Jesus is, and she begins to worship to the point where she brings in this perfume, which we don't think a lot about it. We go to the store, we buy some cologne or perfume today. It's not a big deal. You may have multiple bottles. I don't know. I mean, I know people who have collections of it. I'm not that avid, but I have some friends who are. They love it. You know, I'm just like, man. But in this day and time, it was very rare and it was very expensive. It wasn't customary. You used it very little, as a matter of fact. And most common people didn't even own it because it was just very expensive. You know, and so, but we see this moment here where this lady comes in and she begins to worship at the feet of Jesus because that's really what she's doing. She's recognizing her need for who he is and also recognizing that he is worthy to be worshiped. 
Now, the religious people of the day could not see Jesus for who he was. Through their knowledge, they were blinded to the reality of who he was. Therefore, it caused them to not worship. If we're not careful, we can become so head saved that we become heart dead. We can. And what happens? When your heart has grown cold, your worship will stop. It will. And so we have to what? We have to make sure that we don't just get a bunch of head knowledge when it comes to Scripture, the Word of God, the way we do church, all these types of things. We want our heart engaged with the presence of God. And one of the best ways that I know to make sure that that stays is to make sure that my heart is invested in my worship. Not just that I'm singing songs because we put the words up on the screen. The Bible says that when we get saved, it um, says it this way, that I would put a new heart within them and a new song in their mouth. That's kind of interesting. A new heart. Well, we understand that. Well, I got saved, man. I had a heart that was hardened and was no good and all these types of things. Man, I got saved. My heart was changed. You're gonna st- yeah, but God will also give you a song. I may not be a physical, I mean, I'm just not saying you're going to start writing songs. That's not what I'm saying. But Ephesians also talks about having a melody in our heart. This is talking about worship. And our worship, and this is why it matters, because your worship doesn't only affect you. It affects other people. I mean, I'm thankful that we have people who use their gifts and use their talents to help lead us into worship. Their job is not to worship for us. Their job is to what? For some who may be rhythmically challenged, vocally challenged, they turn up the volume so we get masked, right? And so you don't notice some of our... And they lead us into the presence of God. But it's not their job to get you to the presence of God. It's your job to get you to the presence of God. They're to lead, and we're to, what, to join in with them. With a chorus of worship as one heart and as one mind. That's an environment where God can do anything. And look, and I'm not saying that we don't have a good worship culture. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm telling you, it can be even better. It can be. Now, it's going to take some... Effort on all of our parts. Man, I know this might be a shocker to you. I don't always feel like preaching. But there are days I have to wake up and say, not today, devil. I'm going to get up. I know that might be a shocker to you. But there are days. There are days as the pastor of the church that I'm like, I don't want to worship today. I'm in a bad mood. Our technology's freaking out, and that ticks me off. But I'm not going to let, before I'm pastor, I'm a child of God. Amen. And, and, and as a child of God, I've just made the determination, I am a worshiper. It's just who I am. We have to make, why? Because I have an understanding that I set the bar. Not just as pastor, I set the bar for anybody who comes and sits around me. You set the bar for anybody who comes and sits around you. You're like, man, 
I don't know if I like all this. That's who you're called to be. It really is. I'll show you. Let me show you another account. I'm going to run out of time. Where another lady did something very similar. Now, this comes out of Mark chapter 14. It's a very, very similar situation, but they're actually two separate occurrences. But here in uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 3, it says, Meanwhile, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, who had, been, uh, who had previously had leprosy, while he was eating, a woman came. There's something about Jesus eating and, people, and these ladies coming to him. I'm not quite sure, but this is the second time that we see this. Jesus eating food and a woman came with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive per- perfume made from the essence of heart. It says, she broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Since some of those at the table were indignant, they were angry. Says, why waste such expensive perfume? They said, it could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her harshly. So let me give this in proper context. In the day in which this was happened, the jar that this lady had was worth three hundred denarii. Now, like, what is that? One denarii was a day's wage. So they say it's a year's wages. Technically, if you in our modern culture, it's actually more than that because we only work most of us five days a week. Three hundred working days, not just days. That's how much this little jar, approximately twelve ounces of oil, is worth. We hear where it talks about that it was uh, the it was one of the most expensive uh, ointments of the day. It came from India. It was extracted out of grass. I mean, it's kind of crazy, the whole process. I mean, you know, I kind of looked into it because I was curious. But, I mean, but it was extremely expensive because of how it was made, where it came from, all these times. It was very rare. Most people had never even smelt it. That's how rare it was. And so, of course, there's people at the table, and they're thinking... This is the most amazing smell in the world, but what a waste. Because here was the thing. They were put in stone jars, and they would be sealed with a lid. Once you took the lid off, it was no longer sealed. So it meant you had to use it all at once. So there was no, like, little dab, like just ration it out. There was none of that. It was full-on commitment the moment you popped the cork on it. Very rare. People at the table are upset because they're, like, thinking, what a waste. Jesus responds, and it actually says that they begin to scold her. In other words, they begin to berate her. They begin to give her a hard time. How foolish. Now, other accounts of this same passage said that Judas was one of the more vocal ones. Well, Judas was also the the bookkeeper, the money bag holder. But it says he didn't care anything about the poor because he he occasionally took money out of the till. So he cared nothing about really what was happening. What he's thinking was, you know how much money I could have skimmed off the top of that? That's what Judas was thinking. Now there's accounts of this in Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, if you're curious. Because um, you, you kind of get some different perspectives a little bit. But Verse 6, it says that Jesus responds and says, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? says, you will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want. Many times people take that whole verse out of context right there because they're like, hey, Jesus said you'd always have the poor. 
Yeah, but Jesus said you can also help them anytime you want. So don't forget that part. (laughs) Well, you can't do nothing about the poor. They're always going to be poor. Well, okay. I'll leave that between you and Jesus. He says, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. I want you to catch that. Y'all don't worry about what she's done. She, as an individual, has done what she can do. You know, God will never ask you to do what you can't do in that moment. He really won't. Now, it may, you may feel like, I can't do that. I mean, if I'm this lady, I got 300 reasons why I can't do this. 300 days wages in this little jar of perfume that she's now pouring onto the head of Christ. Says so she has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. Now, to kind of put all this in context, you're like, what does all this matter? It's happening right now. This is Palm Sunday. It's the same time frame that this is happening with Jesus. It's Passover week. And here she is anointing Christ for what? For what will soon be his death, burial, and resurrection. And in an act of just unexplainable worship, Jesus says, y'all leave her alone. She's preparing me for what's about to happen. See, all the disciples, because see, they were, obviously, this is Mary. Not the mother of Jesus, but Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the family. This is Mary of that family. They're at Lazarus's house having dinner. In this moment. And yet she comes. And and I want you to hear this. In verse 9 it says. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world. This woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. One of the last acts that we see before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And rides upon the donkey. And ultimately gets tried. And and sentenced. And murdered. And rose. Before all of that. One of the last things we see is is an unbelievable act of worship. But see, her her worship did not just affect her. It didn't just affect Jesus. Everybody in that room and probably walking by experienced the presence, the aroma of her worship. The same thing happened with the first lady that we looked at. The expression of their worship did not just affect them alone. It affected not only the room, but even those who would walk by. See, I believe that, that even in this that we can understand some things. That when we would worship and truly have a heart of humility that God is worthy, not only will it affect me, not only will it, will it bless the heart of God, although it will, it will also begin to affect those around me as well. In a very powerful and in a, in a dynamic way. Now let me give you a little bit more clarity into this because it says that that both of these women did what they anointed christ they would wash his feet they would use their hair i mean they you know this was they were fully invested in this but um there's a guy named rick renner and he's a greek scholar i mean he's yeah don't notice he he knows how to read the bible in the original language it was written like not just go and define it he knows how to read it it's kind of crazy but this is what he says about this particular passage. It says, In the days of the New Testament, a woman's hair represented her glory and her honor. 
The Apostle Paul referenced this in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen when he wrote that a woman's hair was a glory to her. For Mary to undo her hair and use it as a towel to wipe Jesus' feet was probably the greatest act of humility that she could have shown. She was demonstrating how deeply she loved and how greatly she valued Jesus. She didn't just throw a financial offering at his feet, but she, was, but she possessed an attitude of worship as she gave Jesus the best that she had to offer. This wasn't about the money for her. She was bringing to Christ the very best, most important, most valuable, most precious thing to her as an act of worship. That was the the heart of what we see here. See, Jesus had changed Mary's life. It wasn't just a random moment. This was the same Mary who, at, at another time, that Jesus was eating at their house is that, you know, it says that Mary and Martha, Martha's in the kitchen stressed out and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha comes in there all ticked off saying, Jesus, don't you think she should get off her rear end and come in there and help me? And what did Jesus say? He says, Martha, you're worried about all this other stuff, but Mary has chosen the most important thing. And I'm not going to take that from her. This is the same lady. This is the same lady whose brother was Lazarus who Jesus has raised from the dead. So we get some some context here. See, Jesus had truly changed Mary's life. See, every step that Jesus took to Mary was precious, was, was honored. It was greatly valued. See, in both of these instances, we see where these ladies worship, their act of worship, was an outward expression really of their heart, but it also affected other people. Our worship is to be what? Is to be outwardly, yes, it's an outward expression of what's happening on the inside of us. And many times words fail to give us meaning enough. That's why sometimes we raise our hands and sometimes people may lift their voice and they may not even have words. Why? Because words tend to fail us. They're not adequate. But see, these ladies' worship affected everybody in the room. They literally got to experience the fragrance of their act of worship. They got to experience something that they had probably never experienced, never smelt, never encountered in any way. This was a huge moment. Jesus uh, talking to the woman at the well over in... Uh, John chapter 4, I'm not going to read any, I'm just going to give you two verses here out of the Amplified Bible. But he says, because they're having a debate about worship. And he says, you Samaritans do not know um, who, do not know what you worship. He says, we Jews do know what we worship for salvation is from the Jews. That's verse 22, sorry. I meant starting verse 23. It says, but a time is coming and is already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. The Amplified adds this, from the heart and the inner self. True worshipers will worship from their spirit, not their mouth. It says, so they'll worship in spirit and in truth. That word could also be translated as purity with a right motive, a pure heart. It says, for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is looking for people who know how to worship. 
It's good news for us. He says in verse 24, God is spirit, the source of light of life yet invisible to mankind and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The message translation adds this where it talks about that God is uh, looking for true worshipers. It says your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. Your worship has to engage your spirit man in your pursuit of truth. Of your, in your pursuit of God. See, true worship is when there's a heart connection between your heart and my heart with the heart of God. It's a spirit-to-spirit connection. It's not just, well, I'm just singing in a moment. It's not lip service. It's not. It's so much deeper than that. And I'm telling you, the life of your connection with God is tied to your worship. Like, well, I don't, I don't know how to worship. Start looking around and start copying if you got to, you know. Fake it till you make it. I wouldn't tell you to do that, but that would be the saying that we would say. Like, well, I don't know how. Close your eyes. Lift your hands. You're like, that makes me uncomfortable. I think it was uncomfortable for Jesus to hang on the cross too. What do people think? The Bible says that Jesus didn't care what people thought about him. What they said about him. It says he despised the shame. Why? Because Jesus hanging on that cross was the ultimate act of worship unto God. Why? Because it was the very thing that God had sent him to do. See, worship's not about us. And anytime we make it about us, it's not worship. Worship is focused on God. We're glorifying Him. Well, there's that heart connection. You, de- you develop that, that connection with the Lord through time, through exposure. It's more than just singing words. It's more than just a good beat. It's more than just being moved by a moment. Although, there's, I mean, that happens. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this. I'll just give you just verse 1, but it says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God as, um, because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice that He would find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Is it what? I'm tired, but I'm going to lift my voice. That's a sacrifice to God. Last weekend, my arms were sore because of playing softball. But I still lifted my hands in worship. Why? It's a sacrifice. It's not God's fault that I went and thought I was 14 again. Right? (laughs) In great shape. Not so much anymore. But yet I, I don't want that limitation to be what is the barrier between me and my worship either. I don't care how I feel. It's not about how I feel. It's about who God is. And He is worthy and He is deserving of my praise and of my worship. One last passage of scripture for you. And I just want you to see this. I'm not going to really unpack this, but I want you to... I, I, I think it's so important is that First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. He says, You are my chosen people. You are a royal priest. A holy nation, God's very own possession. It says, As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. 
For he has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. He says in verse 10, Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received the mercy of God. Now, I realize not everybody understands Old Testament in here. I get it. The Bible says in the New Testament that there aren't one or two priests. There's not like the great high priest who enters, enters into the Holy Holies once a year to pour out. No, the Bible says that we all are now priests. Really, you, if you want to get technical about it, this is what it meant. The priests were the only ones that got to go into the presence of God. Everybody else stood outside and watched. Wonder what it's like in there. When Jesus rose from the dead, God changed everything. Because God was not going to be confined to a room called the Holy of Holies that only the most high priest could go in once a year. And if he had anything in him that wasn't right, he dropped dead. Kind of crazy. I get it. You're like, man, that's morbid. You'd make sure your heart was right before you went in there. I tell you that. I would. And yet now we have free access 24 hours a day, seven days a week to what they got to go in to one day in one moment, once a year, one person. And yet here it says that we are God's chosen people for we are his royal priest. In the Old Testament, the priest had one job, one responsibility really. And this is what it was, was to minister unto the Lord. Now, theologically, I can't explain this to you. I can't. What does God have need of? He's God. But yet, we can actually minister to the heart of God. And that was the job of the priest, was to minister to the Lord. Well, one of the ways that they did that was through their, they had rituals, they had all these things that they did, yes. But part of how they did it was worship. Well, we are all called to that today. Why? Because you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. As a result, you can now show others the goodness of God. Why? Because he called you out of a dark place and he set you in a place of light. He's brought you into his family. And so even as we worship, it's well, that's not my gift. I didn't say that. It's not about gifting. It's really not. Now, I'm not going to give you a microphone and throw you up on stage either. We reserve that for gifting, right? But you're no less important worshiping out here. Let me say it this way. They lead from the stage. You can lead from the seat. That's my challenge to you. You lead from right where you're at. Why? Because I see a church in my heart where as we begin to worship, supernatural things would begin to happen. I mean, where people's bodies would begin to be healed. Just miracles as we worship. Where people walk in here and they're bound and they're depressed and they're addicted and and, and they've got all these things going on in their life. And in a moment of our worship, boom, God's presence hits them and it sets them free. Not because we had something crazy happen. I believe that, and we've had it happen a little, not, but I believe it's coming even more. That people will come to service, they'll leave, 
be totally changed. We won't know anything about it. And a month later, they'll come back and be like, you have no idea what happened. We're going to be like, nope. We were just loving on Jesus. <laughs> like, I don't what happened? And they'll begin to tell us stories. The Lord healed my body. You want to participate in this? This is how you do it. You set the atmosphere. You usher in the presence of God every time we come together. And then we're going to let God be God. Because he's the one who heals. He's the one who saves. He's the one who restores. He's the one who does the work. And all we have to do is set the atmosphere so that people's hearts can receive. People can walk in our doors broken hearted, but they can leave whole. Why? Because he's done it for me. He's done it for a lot of you. Why wouldn't, I mean, what God's done in me is pretty good. I kind of like it. I'm kind of thankful for it. And I want to see it happen in a lot of other people's lives. And I believe that it all starts through worship. Through a heart that says, God, man, I want to, I want to connect with you. I want to minister to you. What a privilege. God who needs nothing wants your worship. And it blesses his heart. And as we'll do it, I believe that the power of God will just continue to increase. Not just for you, not just for me, but for others as well. And we're going to see God do amazing things where only he's going to get the glory for it. Only he's going to get praise for it. Why? Because we just came and loved on the Lord. But God showed up and started ministering to people. And that'll be our testimony. Amen. Stand up with me this morning. Hope you were challenged a little bit today. You know, but I believe God has great things in store for us. I believe God has great things in store for you and for your family and for our church and for our city. And I've just made the determination, which has always been my journey, that God was going to do something. We're not wasting our time here. We're either going to be about something or we just won't be here. (laughs) That's kind of the way I feel about it. But if we're going to do something, let's do something. Let's believe God. Let's not believe small. And as we'll do what we need to do, God will do what he will do. And, And he'll receive all the glory for it.